Let me ask you a question. How many of you have ever been wrong? Let me ask it an extended way. How many of you have ever been wrong, and until the moment where you were irrefutably proved to be wrong, you were absolutely convinced you were right? All right? Or better, how many of you have ever had a spouse that was wrong, and until they were irrefutably proved wrong, believed they were right? Right? It's amazing some of the funny things you kind of remember from your childhood. Um, one of the things I remember from my childhood is uh, my mom and dad had this ongoing argument about the outcome of a high school basketball team between two rival high schools. Now, this was before the age of the Internet, so there was no way for them to prove who was right about it. And so whenever friends would come over, they would have discussions trying to align friends on their side for their particular argument. Now, today, we, you realize we don't really have many arguments about facts anymore, right? You just Google it, right? Just, here it is, I told you. Or, oh, well, we, that's not important, we'll move on to something else, all right? And so my mom and dad, I remember this particular argument that my, uh, my dad actually was right. One of the friends brought a newspaper that had the score in it from that time. And the reason I remember that is because my dad was right on such rare occasions at my house that it was brought up over and over again, right? That's kind of a general consensus in home. Well, sometimes... Being wrong, it's not a huge deal. Sometimes it's over trivial matters. Sometimes it's more important. Anybody ever heard of the a comic named Tim Hawkins? Anybody ever heard of him? Good. Then this will be new. Nobody's heard this. All right. This guy named Tim Hawkins, he's a, he's a Christian comedian. And uh, he, he was telling this story about speaking at a church. And there were 1,500 people at the church. So it was this huge crowd. It's one of the biggest crowds he'd ever done. And so afterwards... He had a CD of his material, and they were going through the line. And he said, all of a sudden, there were like 300 people who bought his CD and wanted his autograph. And he was like, this is great. I can do this. And so he got there, and he said about the second woman in line said, could you put your favorite Bible verse under your name? And he said, my favorite Bible verse is Psalm 34, 8. Taste and see that the Lord is good. He said, I knew that. I'd known it all my life. He said, but in that particular moment, I just went blank. He said, I went down and I wrote Psalm And he said, I could not remember. He said, I couldn't in that moment just write the Bible. I had to put a verse. So he said, I put down Psalm 38, 7. Thought that'd be good. It's a psalm. It's got to be good. Put Psalm 38, 7. He said, I was so confident in myself, I wrote it on about 300 CDs that night. He said, on the way home, I thought, I probably should have checked that out first. Let me read Psalm 38, 7 to you just real quickly. It is not taste and see that the Lord is good. Psalm 38, 7 is. The suspense is there, right? For lo, there is a burning pain in my loins. And there is no health in my body. Some mistakes are larger than others. He said, although he's coming to Nashville soon. He's a funny guy. But he, he, said, I, he said, I just know there's some... Older lady at the house that night goes, oh, this is his favorite verse. Let me just look it up and see what it says. Oh! Some mistakes are worse than others. Over the last few weeks, we've been talking about this concept of worship. And we started 
several weeks ago with this concept that we are the biggest problems in our own worship. The biggest obstacles in our worship is us. And that we have to overcome the barriers that we have. Specifically in the second week, that was the things in our lives that are warring against our devotion to the Lord. And so anything that takes precedence over Him in any area of our life becomes an idol. And as a result, we have this battle raging within us. Now the third week, we talked about the fact that God has created a method. And it it demonstrated in the tabernacle and the temple where He has stepped down to our level, and it is up to us to follow the pattern that God has established to enter into His presence. It starts with confession and sacrifice, and it ends with a life devoted to Him. Now last week we talked about that because of what He's done, and who He is, and what's going on in in the world because of Christ and all that is there, that our lives ought to be filled with a passion to serve and to honor and to worship Him. So I hope what we're seeing is this progression. There was an obstacle that was created from Genesis chapter 3 that we have to overcome in our worship of the Lord. And the Lord has provided the way for us to do that. The question is whether it will be true in our lives. But I want you to know from last week that God never intended for our worship to become something that was just ritualistic and rote and normal. And in fact, that so far we have an incomplete picture of what worship really is. Now there are a lot of places that would stop with last week and say, look, the Lord overcame our difficulties. He gave us patterns and ways to come to Him. And we have to passionately pursue truth and pursue Him and pursue life. But the Israelites found out that that wasn't enough. You've got your Bibles turned to Isaiah. Chapter 58. What we have in Isaiah chapter 58 is this interesting passage where the people of God think that they're doing everything right and they are dead wrong. Now, the reason I chose Isaiah 58 is because it's representative of a lot of the prophets and what they say. That their understanding of worship and how it had become this rote thing where people just kind of came and they did their thing when they were supposed to do their festival, but it did not impact or affect the rest of their lives. Isaiah 58 verse 1 says, Cry out loudly, do not hold back. Raise your voice like a trumpet. Tell my people their transgression and the house of Jacob their sins. Now, just a quick note on that. We're going to kind of walk step by step through this, this passage. The first part of that there says to cry out. And the literal translation of that is to speak from the depths of your throat as opposed to the top of your head. You know what it's like when you speak from the depths of who you are, right? The other day we were were all somewhere together as a family. And uh, we were in a, it was like a parking lot or... I'm not real sure where it was. I remember the scene, but I don't remember the the details of the surroundings. But generally, when we're in somewhere like that, Susan was talking with someone. My job is to herd the cats, known as my four kids, right? And that's not an easy job. And so you're always kind of looking, oh, back over here, come back over here. Ava's not bad right now because, you know, you just hold her. But Luke, don't don't get out there, Luke. Maddie, step back over here. Eli, could you watch your sister for a minute? You know, just constant. 
Well, on this particular day, we were talking, and I said something to the person that was talking to Susan. I can't remember who it was. And when I looked back, I saw that Luke had wandered too far into the parking lot or street or wherever we were and was now in the danger zone. And it was one of those things that I could not go to him and say, um, could you please step back this direction, son? And so out of my voice, out of my depths, just came, Luke! He stopped, turned around, get over here now! It was nicely said, but it was the gist. And Susan just looked at me with like, why are you yelling? I'm like, did you not see where he is? I mean, he's almost out there. It was one of those moments that a simple, children, let's gather around the carpet and discuss what has happened here today, was not appropriate. Right? This was a, this is an urgent moment where we have to say something right now and it has to let them know that it is unacceptable and to get back. Parents, you've been there? Okay. God is saying to Isaiah, tell the people from the depths of your soul that this is that important. That this is vital. That it is understood that this is not something you can wait on or or, or kind of wait around with, or take your time with. This is vitally important in this moment for these people. And he says, these are their sins. Look at verse 2. He lists their sins. They seek me day after day, and delight to know my ways. Like a nation that does what is right and does not abandon the justice of their God, they ask me for righteous judgments. They delight in the nearness of God. Okay, quick question. Stop. Don't look ahead. What's wrong with that? That's a good answer because it's nothing wrong with that, right? At least it doesn't seem to be. I mean, I want you to imagine for a minute. How many of you are dads of daughters? How many of you have daughters? Okay. I want you to imagine for a minute you've got a daughter. She's at, if, maybe, she's, maybe in your life your daughter's already past the dating age, the married age. But let's just imagine she's at the dating to marry age. Okay. So like the guys that she bring home, this is not like her... 12-year-old, I'm going with this boy. This is like, this could be serious, all right? And she brings home this guy, and you sit around and talk, and you say, just describe him to me. Tell me about him. And she says, well, he is a guy that seeks after the Lord every day. He delights to know the ways of the Lord. He tries to do what is right all the time. He tries to bring justice to the world. He wants to be righteous in everything he does, and he really loves to be close to God. You're like, when can you go ahead and get married? Let's go ahead and do that, right? And that's what you want to hear. And so when God starts out saying, this is the sins of the people. They come to me day after day. They try to come and they want to seek after me. They're looking for righteousness. They delight in the nearness of God. Verse 3 says, and they ask me, why have we fasted and nothing has happened? We denied ourselves and Lord, you haven't even noticed. You know, one of the things that I've just kind of noticed over the last 20 years of my life, from the time I was a teenager till now, is that there is, does seem to be this kind of deterioration in the overall righteousness of our society. And as I've noticed that, almost every conference I go to, almost every time I get together with any kind of pastors or meetings or the Southern Baptist Convention, or the Tennessee Baptist Convention, or the National Baptist Association, or the Goodness Ministerial Alliance, or the men's conference we went to, or 
passion conferences, anything I've been to in the last 20 years, almost every conference has some time in the midst of that when we spend time crying out for revival from the Lord. Praying that God will bring revival to His land. Praying that God will do in our land again what He once did. Praying that God will do something amazing in our land. But do you know in 20 years of sincere men and women of God praying over and over and over and over, quoting Second Chronicles 7.14, if my people who are called by my name will honor me, will turn from their wicked ways, will pray and seek my face, then I will hear from heaven and heal their land. Do you know in 20 years of praying, what we have not seen is a recognizable nationwide revival from God. And there are times, and I, I don't, this is part of the cynical nature of my generation that sometimes come out. We're in those moments where we're praying for revival from a nation that sometimes I want to say, God, why hasn't it already happened? And that's what the people of Israel are saying. God, we're coming to your house. We're doing what you ask. We're even fasting. In the original law, there was only one day we had to fast. We've come up with four or five other days to fast, and we're doing it. Why does it seem like you're ignoring me? Verse 3 continues. Look, he says, notice, you do as you please on the day of your fast. You oppress all your workers. You fast with contention and strife to strike viciously with your fist. You cannot fast as you do today, hoping to make your voice heard on high. Is this the choice I want? The fast I want? A day for a person to deny himself? To bow his head like a reed? And to spread out sackcloth and ashes? Will you call this a fast and a day acceptable to the Lord? This is what God says. Listen, here's the problem. You're doing all the ritual stuff. You're doing all the things. You're coming to church. You're praying. You're singing. You're doing all that. You're listening to sermons. You're writing down stuff. You're doing Bible studies. You're giving. You're doing all that. But in the midst of that, it hasn't changed the way you behave one bit. And do you really think that what I want is an hour or a day? He says you come and you fast, but on the same day that you fast, you take advantage of your workers and you do whatever you want to do. It's almost like you're saying, God, I'll do whatever I want to do here if you'll forgive me there. God says that's not going to work. When we get to the New Testament, Jesus will often talk about the Pharisees who had come to exhibit exactly what Isaiah is talking about here, who would pray in public, who would, who would stand on the corner in public and try to give the most eloquent prayers you have ever heard. Who, when they gave, would bring the bill out of their pocket and snap it and show it in the air and drop it in the plate. Who would consistently say, I'm going to church today, are you going? Well, the people of God are going, what about you? And yet they forgot the most basic parts of what God's called us to do in the world. Aren't you glad we progress past the place where people just come to worship on Sunday and then don't let it affect their lives the rest of the week? Well, maybe not. Verse 6. This is the fast I choose. To break the chains of wickedness. To untie the ropes of the yoke to set the oppressed free, and to tear off every yoke. 
Is it not to share your bread with the hungry, to bring the poor and the homeless into your house, to clothe the naked when you see him, and to not ignore your own flesh and blood? Then your light will appear like the dawn. Your recovery will come quickly. Your righteousness will go before you, and the Lord's glory will be your rear guard. He says, listen, this is what I desire of you. I desire for you to notice the situations around you. I desire for you to see the problems that are surrounding you. I desire for you to look at people around you like I look at people, and then to take action to correct what is wrong in this world. You are my emissaries. You are my ambassadors. You are my representatives in this world. Do something about the sin in the world. Here's the truth. Worship that does not lead to action is incomplete worship. You can stand and raise your hands and jump around and dance and sing and have a good time. And I love that song. Turn it up in the car. When I get in the car, I want to listen to it again. I want to get excited about it. I want to hear it again. Woo, the truth in that song is good. But if it doesn't lead to action, it is incomplete. Worship is incomplete without action. And so what we do here on Sunday mornings, as you're sitting here, as you're listening, as we're singing, as we're talking, as we're reading, as we're studying, as we're praying, as you're inviting and talking to other people, as you're having fellowship with one another, all that is incomplete if it makes no difference when we leave this place. Now, you know that. All of us know that. All of us have heard that. All of us expect that. And yet most of us still walk out of here completely unaffected in our daily lives by the truth that Jesus Christ has saved us and rescued us and we don't do anything during the week that reflects that in any way. Our workstation looks exactly like the other. And I don't mean you've got to put up things. I'm talking about the way we interact with people. Our customer service is the same as other people. Our relationship to the poor is the same as everybody else. Our relationship across racial lines is the same as everybody else. Our relationship with those that have more than us is the same as everyone else. The relationship we have with people that are different than us is the same as everyone else. We don't have any effect. All the studies are out there that shows that people that claim to be followers of Jesus Christ are not different in hardly any ways than the society as a whole. And the scripture tells us that that cannot be. When Jesus comes along, he calls us and he says, come follow me, I'll make you fishers of men. And his call is not a call to a little bit, it's a call to die to yourself and to follow him with all you have. God says to the people of Israel, you think you're doing great. You think because your attendance is good and because you know the songs and because you've given the percentage of your offering that somehow that is going to make everything okay. But you really don't seek me. You're there for selfish purposes. He says, if you were to do that, to break the chains of wickedness, to untie the ropes of the yoke, to set the oppressed free, to tear off every yoke, if you were to share your bread and to bring the poor and homeless into your house and to clothe the naked. You know what's interesting? When Jesus is talking later, most of you know that passage where he says, whatever you've done for the least of these, you've also done for me. Do you remember what he talks about? He says, because when you saw me, you visited me in prison. You clothed me. You fed me. You gave me something to drink. When did we do that? And he says, whenever you clothed, fed, gave something to drink, visited in present, the least of these, you did it to me. I think he's referring back to Isaiah 58. That worship that is right and true and complete always leads to action. I love the picture. He says that when that happens, your light will appear like the dawn. 
and your recovery will come quickly. Your righteousness will go before you and the Lord's glory will be your rear guard. You will be protected in the front and behind. You will be a spokesman for the Lord and you will carry out His plan. You see, we forget that worship is a part of God's grand plan for His glory and His name and His kingdom to spread throughout the earth. And what we forget is that we somehow like to keep all that in here together instead of proclaiming it to the world. And as a church, and as churches, we have fallen down when it comes to the way we love the world around us. I was talking with somebody the other day, and the Lord just kind of gave me this to think through. In this current state of the church in America, what, what I've kind of come with is that we have learned to be critical of those who are outside the faith and easy on those who are inside. And if you look throughout Scripture, the opposite is true. That Jesus, in particular, was always loving and caring for those outside the faith and very critical of those who went away from inside. And so if you watch television, Christians are screaming at everybody around us because the world's going to hell in a handbasket and we don't know what to do about it, so we yell at everybody else. And we tolerate sin in our midst like everything's okay. When Scripture calls us to love those outside of our faith and to expect people within the church to act like they're followers of Jesus. We've lost our positioning of being the church that helps people who are seeking salvation. Uh, this weekend, some of our guys went to a men's conference that Lifeway put on downtown. It was a really good conference. But before the event on Friday night, as pastors, we get to go to an event on Friday afternoon. And at that event, Dr. Tony Evans, how many of you ever heard Dr. Evans speak? Dr. Tony Evans, great man of God, communicator of God's truth, spoke to us about the church and its position and that kind of thing. And he told this kind of interesting story. Um, he related it, first of all, to this passage of Scripture in Galatians chapter 2, which is a fascinating passage of Scripture. Because Paul is writing the letter of Galatians, and he's writing about this incident that happened where Peter with some other friends come up to eat with some guys, and they go into this Gentile's house and they start to eat. Now, to hear Dr. Evans teach it, Dr. Evans was talking about they had crossed the tracks and discovered pork. Right? Because Peter had grown up all his life without bacon and ham hocks. Amen? And he gets across there, and these guys are serving him dinner. And he's like, man, this is the greatest stuff I've ever eaten. They're having a good time. But all of a sudden, their fellowship, they're talking about Jesus, they're talking about all this stuff. All of a sudden, Peter hears that there are some other friends of his from Jerusalem coming that would not approve of him eating with Gentiles. So Peter gets up from the table and leaves. And it says in Scripture that he gets up from the table and leaves, and the other Jews are with him, including, almost like, even, you won't believe this, but Barnabas even got up and left. The reason this is in Galatians is because Paul then says, when I got there, I confronted Peter face to face and said, that cannot be. And in the front of the public, I said, now, who is this? Who is he confronting? Peter. Who's the leader of the early church? Peter. Isn't like, you know, some 
scrub that nobody really knows about. This is like the guy that stood up on Pentecost and preached the first sermon about Jesus. He says, I confronted him face to face. And what's interesting is he told him that cannot be that Christ has rescued us and we are to all be one, that our identity in Christ comes before any other identity we have. What's interesting at the end of that story is a passage of Scripture that's Galatians 2, 19 and 20. For I no longer live, but Christ now lives in me. His point is that Christ has so radically changed my life that there is no Gentile and there is no Jew. It is believers in Jesus Christ. And as believers in Jesus Christ, we have to work together to serve the world. He told this story. And I don't know whether it's true or not. It's good enough that it ought to be true, whether it's good or not. Whether it's true or not. It's about a young guy that was driving with his new wife. And they were on one of those backcountry roads. It was just two lanes. You had to pass. And they got behind a, a large vehicle that was going rather slowly. And it was just after the sun had set. And he said, you know what? We've got to get around this thing. We've got places to go. They were on their way to a friend's house. And so they swerved out to get around the truck. And they got about halfway around the truck when they realized there was a car coming the other way. As the car was coming the other day, he tried to get back in, but he just clipped it. The car flipped, rolled off the side into the ditch. The car ended up back on its right side and he could open his door. And as he looked into the passenger seat, he noticed that his wife was bleeding. And so he got out of the car and he went around and he unbuckled her and he was getting her out. When he looked up and over to the side, he saw a sign that just simply said, Home of Dr. Brown. So he gets his wife, and he lays her out beside the, the vehicle, and he thinks, I've got to go get help. And he, he sees that she's standing up to go get help. So he goes up to the house, and he gets up to the house, and he knocks on the door, and he bangs on the door. And finally, the, the guy comes to the door, and he opens the door, and he walks out, and he says, can I help you? He goes, I saw that your sign says, Dr. Brown, is that you? Yes, I'm Dr. Brown. Well, I've got a question for you, sir. He said, we've just been in an accident. My wife is down here. She's just a few yards down here. Can you please come help? Look at her. You can help her. you got your stuff here. And he said, son, I'm sorry. I no longer practice medicine. And the young husband could not handle that answer. And so he said to him, Sir, respectfully, I say you have two choices right now. One is, you either help my bride, or two, you take the sign out of your yard. And Dr. Evans said, There are a lot of churches and a lot of places that got a sign out front that says church, but they're not acting like one at all. And they either start acting like a church, or they take the sign down. Last week we talked about a passion for the Lord. Can I tell you something? Your passion for the Lord must, has to, extend to a passion for others. And that is worship. If you can come in here on Sunday morning and sing and close your eyes and celebrate and dance and jump and sing and hoot and holler, well, y'all don't do that, but let's pretend, all right? Let's pretend you're excited about worship some Sunday, all right? And you can walk the halls of your school and not care a bit about those people that are not followers of Jesus Christ, then you've missed something. If you can come into this place and go to Sunday school and think, man, that was such a good lesson, I learned so much. And you go to worship, and man, I love those songs. And the pastor, he was really good today, and, or, or I'm glad it's over, or whatever. But you walk out of here, and you go to work the next day, and there are people beside you that are lost, that are not followers of Jesus, or that are hurting and in deep, difficulty and it doesn't concern you at all then you have missed something you didn't worship 
Verse 9 says, if you get all that straight, when you call, the Lord will answer. When you cry out, He'll say, I'm already here. If you get rid of the yoke from those around you, the finger pointing and malicious speaking, if you offer yourself to the hungry and satisfy the afflicted one, your light will shine. Your light will shine in the darkness. Your night will be like the noonday. The Lord will lead you. He'll give you everything you need in a land that is desperate for water. He'll strengthen you. You'll be like a watered garden, like a spring whose waters never run dry. Some of you will be the ones that rebuild the ancient ruins, restore the foundations. You'll be called the repairer of broken walls, the restorer of streets. That's what I love about this passage. Because it starts with their worship and says it's insufficient. And then it goes into a whole passage. It doesn't have anything to do about worship but how they treat other people. But he says, when you get all that straight, when you get how you live Monday through Saturday for us, when you get how you live when you're not in the worship center, when you get all that straight, then guess what happens? Verse 13. You keep from desecrating the Sabbath, from doing whatever you want. That day becomes a delight. The holy day of the Lord, honorable. If you honor it, not going your way, seeking your own pleasure, talking too much, you will delight yourself in the Lord and I will make you ride in places you've never expected. You will enjoy the heritage because God has spoken these words. Somebody has said that what ought to happen on Sunday is we are broken again from our addiction to self. And it reminds us that the week that is to come is a week dedicated to the Lord. So here's my question. Are you going to care and listen to what we talked about? Because you know what's disturbing about Isaiah chapter 58? Is that the nation of Israel heard it, but guess what they did? Nothing. Oh, occasionally they'd have a little better here or a little better there. But they didn't heed the warning. And my guess is there's a large percentage of you that are here today I won't heed the warning. Some of you, because it's just you're here looking for something besides a word from the Lord. Some of you, because you hear it, but you think it's for somebody else and not for you. Some of you, because you're not in a place to receive a word from the Lord because you've never come into a relationship with Him. What God would basically say to these people is you think you're close to me, but you're as far away as you can be. Because your life shows no evidence of change. One of the hardest verses for me as a pastor to read and deal with. One of the verses I wish was not in Scripture is that place over in the New Testament when Jesus is talking to a crowd and He's talking about separating on Judgment Day those that are His and those that are not. And He says that He'll separate them and someone will come to Him and say, But Lord, look at all the stuff we did! I mean, we went to church. We went to Sunday school. I even taught a Sunday school class. I gave money to the church. I went on that mission trip. You remember all that stuff I did? And Jesus will say, away from me. I never knew you. What he tells the Israelites in Isaiah 58 is that just because you're going through the motions, it doesn't have anything to do with whether or not you're in a relationship with me. And so the question I have for you is, are you in an relationship following Jesus Christ? Or are you just going through the motions hoping it will get you by? Let's pray.